Welcome to the Small Business Wake-Up Call, the twice-weekly podcast that will open your eyes to the kinds of insights you can use to better run your business. Come have your morning Joe with hosts Lonnie Shambi and Stan Simpkins, who have the right recipes and ingredients to easily help you cook up a storm for even your toughest competitor. No lectures, no wasting your time telling you how smart they are, and no bullshit. The Small Business Wake-Up Call is going to make you think, laugh, and help you recognize how much money you've been leaving on the table with advice that'll help you improve your quality of life. Lonnie and Stan are small business veterans who will share their individual war stories and experiences, not only from their own businesses, but also from guiding hundreds of other small business owners in over 100 industries. Head on over to sbvirtualroundtables.com where you can connect with Lonnie and Stan and save yourself some headaches. Grab that second cup of joe, or maybe something a bit stronger, and let's see what's on the menu for today. Welcome to the Small Business Wake-Up Call. Here are your hosts, with cups in hand, Lonnie Shambi and Stan Simpkins. Knowing your costs makes every business decision more effective, to say nothing about what it can do for your cash flow and net profit. Welcome to another informative and entertaining session of Small Business Wake-Up Call. I'm one of your hosts, Lonnie Shambi, and with my partner, Stan Simpkins, we try with each podcast to not only give you an interesting slant on a business topic, but one that you can't get anywhere else, to give you stuff you can use as soon as it's over. Today, though, we had to hose Stan down prior to start because today we're talking about something right down the center of his fairway. We're talking about costs. And not just the obvious importance of knowing what they are, but how much they affect or should affect decision-making. Their associated impact on not just cash flow and net profit, but on overall costs and even revenue. So before I have to drag out the hose again, here's my partner, Stan Simpkins. <laughs> Lonnie, it's going to take a lot more than a garden hose to cool me off on this topic today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll admit it. You know, this accountant—it's a dry topic. Kind of give you a butt, you know, he's Lonnie. He's drooling. Got he's he's literally <laughs> drooling. He's so jealous. But Lonnie, you know, this has explosive impact. You even said it: cash flow and profitability. So, what are we going to talk about today? There's about six key areas we want to cover. Not the whole scope, but just these six will do it. And I guarantee you, any one of these is likely to help you improve your bottom line and even your cash flow in many cases. So let's talk about pricing and how you can win more sales instead of losing sales you should have had. Many of the common errors and fallacies, I cannot tell you how many times I've asked new clients about their costs and they look at you like deer in a headlight or they're just picking numbers out of the air. They haven't really analyzed them. They're embarrassed to admit that they haven't. It's just not something on their radar. And many of them don't even have a controller in many cases. They're small enough that they can't really justify having an in-house full-time controller. They don't know the numbers the way they should as much as they know other things about the business. The third area, again, to put you to sleep, is break-even point. Okay? But like I said, you might have as much interest in this as I have as interest in your mechanical stuff, Lonnie, since you're an engineer. But you know what? What if I told you I can teach you something simple, though maybe boring, and it can dramatically increase your bottom line. Would that get your interest made? Then I'm listening. Then I'm listening. So that's what I'm saying to our audience. I know that one of the things we hope in our sessions, as we keep saying, is top of mind awareness is you have the resources at your disposal. If you've got a CPA firm, good chance they can help you with this. If you have an in-house controller, they better know these things. 
And the question is, are you engaging in the conversations about them and making it a routine thing? The fourth area is how do you get better pricing? And better pricing isn't just about better negotiations or necessarily even better selling. Because oftentimes the problem you have isn't your selling technique. It isn't your sales force. It's your pricing is wrong. Number five is why sometimes paying more can actually reduce your costs. Imagine that I'm telling you it's almost like contradictory, an oxymoron, if you will. How do you pay more and lower your costs? We're going to show you that. And number six, lastly, how using pricing as a negotiating tool with payment terms. Simple. And you're going to say, yeah, well, you know that. All right. Well, I would ask you to tell me what you know is what you do. I know how to golf 70. I just can't. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) it's interesting. The last couple of these coming from my vantage point, this is really important stuff. So pay attention. Well, Lonnie, it seems like we got you invested now. Finally. (laughs) <laughs> I had to knock him off his pillow this morning to get him to do the session. He was like in protest. All right. Let's start off. In fact, this is interesting. I could ask a random group of 100 business owners, do you use your cost structure in coming up with your pricing methodology? And I think most would say, yeah, I do, at least to some degree. But that same group of 100 random small business owners, if I asked them, do you take into consideration what your chief competition is charging? They'd also say yes. Now, think about that. And there's no question that market conditions, supply and demand do affect it. But oftentimes, pricing, especially in competitive bid situations, is the game. And sometimes you overprice when you didn't realize you could have lowered it and got the CLB just lost by 2% to a competitor. Especially contract. I mean, contract, which I've done all my life. I've had just about every trade. They'll all tell you how they lost it by 1%, but they don't know that they could have gotten it. That's the sad part. They didn't even know. So I come in as a CPA consultant and look at them. I show them they like think I'm a genius. That all I did was do the analysis someone else should have been doing for them. Wait a minute, Stan, you're not a genius? No. no all these no. years? But my grandson he- is. <laughs> <laughs> ask me any question, then I ask my grandson. <laughs> Anyway, so what does all this stuff have to do with costs? When you don't know your costs, we'll describe that in ways today that will make it a disastrous pricing decision based upon inaccurate or misleading cost analysis. We'll start to show you how you can really get yourself focused more on what costs really mean. Stan, you reminded me of a situation I had a while back, and it was interesting. It really ends up with leaving money on the table, and a lot of it. Here's where it comes down. It comes down to, I had a client who was charging a certain amount. They had not raised their prices in several years, and their cost had pretty well stayed the same. And they always used to talk about how they were the lowest priced guy in the block, et cetera. And I said, well, have you ever tried raising your prices? And he said, oh, no, of course not. I said, well, closest competitors, how much? They're a good 5 7% higher than we are. I said, well, okay, raise your prices by 3.5% then. And they said, oh, God, we can't do that. We'll lose deals. Trust me, try it. So they tried it. And over a three-month period, they had zero pushback and 3.5% more at the bottom line. Not gross, at the bottom line. It went straight down. So costs 
are a big deal when it comes down to knowing those costs and knowing what the flexibility you might have with them can do for you as a business. You always like to throw those fancy words like value engineering out. So I figured I'd come up with my version of a fancy word. And you could relate to this. This is kind of one of your things that you love, but that's for another topic on a more censored show called price elasticity. Whoa. Whoa. How's that? Is that impressive? I think I remember mm-hmm. college economics. Really, think of it. If I told you, if you're willing to lower your price by 3%, our studies show you could increase sales by 20% because we looked at the competition and we see how often you're losing orders against your chief competitors. And it seems like there's a pattern. Believe it or not, it's usually 3 to 5%. We showed over and over. The sales team has been telling you that. It's amazing. And you it? just stick to your, no, we're, we're the better product. No, <laughs> they just don't get it. And I go, well, how about we test it? And all of a sudden, holy God, the sales are growing. That's Price elasticity, when some minor change in something creates a dramatic offset in another direction, that's price elasticity. And you gave an example of it. So oftentimes, and again, I want to use the most extreme example, contractors that do municipal, almost 100% bid work. It's not negotiated bid. It's the lowest number gets it, with few exceptions. And they're walking away at the table time and time again, having lost by hundreds or thousands of dollars, which is a fraction of the quote, because they didn't look at it. And we're going to talk about how you recognize it and you get out of that. So that's a little term you might want to keep in the back of your head. And you were talking about cost, Lonnie, and some of the examples. I remember a home remodeling client I mentioned before, and they're high end. They were always the higher number. So part of that comes in with educating the client so they can see the difference in the price. You have any examples of that you've had? The thing is, is most of the time... I don't want to jump ahead of you. It's the area that they don't include in their thinking. And that is, it's the area between revenue and gross profit and typically cost of goods sold, et cetera. But it's really the overhead rate. It's a combination that gets you the pricing that you're giving out to the marketplace. That's a hot button. And interesting thing is, most of the time, they haven't reviewed it in sometimes years. Is that a fact, Stan? Yeah, let me tell you. And worst of all, they'll say to their accountant, hey, so what's my overhead rate? And the accountant will go and look at a statement, add up what they think are the overhead items, divide that into the sales or costs, or as a factor of labor, let's say a percentage of labor, depending on the environment, particularly in manufacturing, say. And that's it. And they use that throughout the whole year without regard to the level of order backlog, if you will, or future flow. And so they're just quoting in a vacuum, not looking at situational, even time situations. So the when part, you and I talked in a previous podcast about not only coming up with a backlog figure in dollars, but also timing it like you do receivables. Exactly. Backlog is something that depends on when you're going to deliver it and how flexible that backlog can be. And Stan's going to talk more about this as we move through this, but if the customer doesn't need that particular item by that particular day, and you could send that product to somebody else where you could actually make more money, all of a sudden now you've won twice. If our listeners had an opportunity to listen to one of our previous podcasts, where we talk about costs could be fixed or variable generally, or maybe a combination of both. 
we all know that in many cases, the, quote, overhead items are rather fixed. Yes. But what do you do when you have a company in a growth mode where sales for next year are projected at 50% above this year? Why wouldn't you then reconstruct your or recompute your overhead rate based upon the forecasted? Because you're going to overprice your products possibly. Now, the market will dictate whether you can get away with it or not. But talk about leaving money on the table or losing sales you shouldn't have because you had the wrong overhead rate built in your pricing. Absolutely. It's not a direct connection. I mean, just because revenue increases doesn't mean overhead has to. In fact, quite the opposite. If you manage your overhead properly, that's how you increase gross margin. That's the name of the game here. Now, Lonnie, since you're the one with the higher IQ, let me ask you a question. I'll pose it to our audience and let them answer the question themselves. And pause for a moment to give everybody a chance to think about it before you give me your answer. So if I had reason to believe that a 5% decrease in our price could result in a 20% increase in sales, or even possibly that a 7% decrease in price could result in a 40% increase in sales, would you be willing to consider the 7% increase as the alternative pricing model? Well, Stan, there you go again, baiting our listeners. So I'll just stop you and give the correct answer. All right. It depends. Ah, you got me. You got me. It sounds like, I know it sounds like my statistics side coming out, and I admit it is. It's true. But actually, I was trying to use another fancy word for you, Socratic method. How do you like that? Oh, Socratic method of he teaching. He does this all the time. <laughs> I got to take every chance I can. All it means is asking questions. Please, well, listen, ask questions. The only alternative to high IQ is a good vocabulary. What can I tell you? <laughs> you know? yeah. But really, in all kidding aside, I'm just trying to get everyone to be thinking about it. But you're correct. It does depend. Because let's face it, imagine this extreme example. You're at 80% of capacity dying to fill that 20% hole. So you do this little 7% dance. And guess what? You're right. You get a 40% increase. That creates this other problem called delayed shipments. Okay, Pissing off customers because you can't keep the promise of delivery. Because the left hand and the right hand, production, sales, and shipping, aren't communicating well. So you fill the capacity hole... And you created a different one. But you told me having a good backlog is a good thing, Lonnie. (laughs) Yes. It depends on how big that backlog is and when it has to be delivered. Oh, so timing is everything, huh? Timing is always everything. You talk about so many people falling asleep on this topic. I got to believe there are people out there going, these guys are nuts. This is so theoretical. Well, you know, yeah, there's some theory to this, but you know what? After having done this for decades that we've had, whether it's manufacturing, wholesale, this is where the money's at. This is the slight edge stuff. There isn't any question. It's interesting to watch a company. I'll tell you a story about, and we're full of stories here. So I'll tell you a story about a manufacturing client that I had. And basically what they were able to do is they were able to smooth out their manufacturing By constantly, that is constantly, looking at backlog and understanding when it was to be delivered and to whom, and to negotiate with various customers about moving that forward or backward, giving them a deal. Tell you what, if you allow us to deliver this 30 days later, 
we'll reduce the price for you by 5%. And now suddenly you got the customer's attention. And at the same time, you've smoothed out your backlog. Interesting. From a customer relations standpoint, sometimes you want to even build those, quote, special opportunities in, even though it may not even exist. But if you can pull it off, then the customer thinks more of you as a partner collaborating to help them achieve their goals of cost control. Exactly. So I know we're kind of beating this thing up, but it's so important. And it's all about timing. And we'll get back to timing in just a moment. As a small business owner, you face many challenges. You're not alone. What can be even more stressful is not having someone to talk to who doesn't have their own agenda. What if you could talk in depth and confidentially to other small business owners like you on a periodic basis, folks facing the same challenges or who have solved the same problems? The Small Business Virtual Roundtables is the answer for you. Small Business Virtual Roundtables are held monthly for 90 minutes. Membership in each roundtable is limited to 15 people, providing ample time for each member to have their issue addressed by their fellow members. These peer advisory groups are formed to avoid competitive concerns while taking into consideration company size and characteristics that closely match your own business. Need more attention? There is a complimentary 30-minute one-on-one session with the facilitators during the month to seek additional feedback. Monthly membership fees to the Small Business Virtual Roundtables are less than the cost of an hour with your attorney, and this is all done without ever leaving your office or home. Just the time savings of avoiding needless driving is worth the cost. New groups of the Small Business Virtual Roundtables are now being formed on a first-come, first-served basis. Ready to sign up? Head to sbvirtualroundtables.com to receive a complimentary invitation to attend up to three meetings. Again, that's sbvirtualroundtables.com. With Small Business Virtual Roundtables, there's no need to go it alone. And now, back to Lonnie and Stan. Now back to timing. So when I was running or advising small businesses, there was a sales situation that was in top of mind. I'd ask the question, in an ideal world, when would the customer want this delivered? I'd wait for the answer and then ask them, is there a drop dead date they need this by? If I could save you some money by pushing that delivery date out, I didn't do it all the time, but I wasn't afraid to ask if after we got the order, we needed to help shift delivery dates around because of production issues, we could. Well, Lonnie, I got a story for you on that one, if you don't mind. My no, I'm, no, let's, let's just throw them out of there. Go ahead. I mentioned the machine shop client. It was actually one of my first clients when I started my own CPA firm. That's where I actually started really getting into the consulting side. They were a machine shop of 10 that grew to 100 in five years. I've told that before. And one of the ways we did that is exactly what you're talking about. When you have a machine shop, for those of you who might not be familiar, you've got a lot of different machine centers, whether it's a drilling machine, a lathe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so you got a bunch of kids' mouths you got to feed. And it's no good if you load up all the lathes and all the drilling machines sitting around idle. So the kind of work you were looking for was as important as the pricing. So in some cases, we might take another job that would appear to be, on the surface, less profitable based upon the margins, quote, gross profit margins. But in reality, it filled up a lot of empty machines. So basically, we're getting production done for free in terms of overhead. So all the overhead element, in effect, was out the door 
by getting that work. Otherwise, you'd have that overhead there with nothing to cover for it. This reminds me of a book that we talked about three or four sessions back that was one called The Goal. And basically- Oh, your buddy, Eli. Eli. Who are also known as Eliyahu Golrat, The Goal. I mean, spectacular. But here was the point. The point of this was each of the work centers wanted to operate at optimum efficiency. Well, if each of the work centers operates at optimum efficiency, first of all, it's theoretical because that had never happened. But the fact of the matter is, and I've seen this time and time again, and think about it, listeners, in your own situation, where basically a work center says, I want to keep it going. I want to keep things going. And what will happen is their stuff, all their machines will be working at 100%. And their raw materials, they'll go through that. And they'll put their work in process in a corner, and it'll just keep building up. And so what will happen is they will be efficient, but you'll be owning a lot of work and process inventory. It's like walking through a jungle. You could be real efficient walking in a straight line, but it might not be the safest route to take. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. So Stan, how do cost factors distort your percentages, gross profit, cost of goods, et cetera? Well, I have to make a confession. As a consultant, when you walk in, they have a particular set of issues to deal with. But invariably, I'd always ask them about these issues because it was like the money hole here, how they were looking at the pricing the cost. Perfect example. And we talked about overhead. So and again, this is where we kind of tune out the non-accountants. But I would tell you, if you're not an accountant, it's okay. You all know what depreciation is. It's basically what you spend to buy a piece of equipment or a building or some what we call fixed asset. And you spread the cost over how many years or how many units of production you think it's going to get. Some method of amortizing the cost over the useful value of it. So it's not just all charged in one year. Now, standing up, my eyes are rolling in the back of my head here. But that's different, Lonnie, than... <laughs> tax purpose where your account might write it off all in one year. Oh, no, more? There's more? Oh, no. (laughs) You want to make money, Lonnie? It's like, I feel like I'm talking to a kid who doesn't want to eat spinach or broccoli. (laughs) You got to eat it if you want to be healthy, Lonnie. There's just no getting around it. That's why we made it to this age, right? Okay. But think about it. You're building in to your pricing, your overhead of your equipment, and admittedly, over the long term, you've got to get paid for it. But there are times in slow periods or who knows what or excess capacity when you can afford, actually afford, the actual economic impact is not negative by maybe not charging for that in order to get that sale because it'll contribute to paying for all the other overhead. And so that if you don't look at each order at a point in time that's your reality then and there, you're going to either leave money on the table or lose a sale you could have gotten and should have gotten. I've always operated businesses on the basis that cash is king. And that's just what Stan's talking about. Because when you're talking about depreciation, this is an accounting point. You've already paid for the equipment. It's done, gone, finished. And now what you're doing is accounting for it. Well, from a cash standpoint, it doesn't matter. Well, it does, though. Because you'll get more cash in if you don't consider depreciation in a sale. I'll give you a perfect example. I had a really large, it was oh, probably in excess of $20 million, second generation, although the kids were still working in the business and the father was still active, heavy highway contractor. I mean, really big. And they had tons 
of equipment. In fact, I would venture to say they had an excess of equipment that the dad, who was very fiscally conservative, would take good care of the equipment, keep it all up, but he'd always still be buying new stuff. It was like his thing. But he justified having the excess in his mind. Well, the fact is, he kept the old stuff around too? Yeah. Oh, geez. Which worked, but the point being that these charges were being built into the pricing model. I said, you know what? You don't need, obviously, you're successful in getting away with it, but I'll bet you 10 to 1 I can show you bids you've done where you've lost it. And if we had knocked out the depreciation on the equipment that was being used on the job, you'd have gotten the job in a heartbeat. It's interesting. I had a client that was, they were doing the assessment of ground before you sell it, et cetera, for big contractors who are building commercial buildings. And same thing. They would be building into their pricing old equipment that they had on their books for 10 years. I mean, it's crazy. Now, I'll give you the contra to that, Lonnie. Since I'm talking about construction, we have what we call the trunk slammers. No disrespect to the smaller contract, but these are the guys who are starting out out of the backseat of their U-Haul truck or whatever. Okay, And they'll price low. I mean, they'll price low and their theory is, well, I don't have the overhead that a big guy does. And they're probably right. But you know what? They never get to put into the treasury the money they need for future purchases. Now, the stuff that Stan's talking about now is kind of accounting stuff. Now, I'm more a down and dirty kind of guy because doing turnarounds and having my own businesses, et cetera, I look at things differently than he does from an accounting standpoint. It's not something that's on your balance sheet, not anything like that. But think about this. Think about making your suppliers a joint venture partner and not a joint venture partner in a big way, but maybe a one-time special pricing for a big potential order just to get your foot in the door. It's a win-win where basically you and your supplier think about how to sell this particular customer. That's something that's a win-win for everybody. How you price this thing, and it's a supplier that would be doing this anyway. And I've done this half a dozen times. It works every time. And then it's other things where you start to look at different ways of approaching your suppliers and using them to become more competitive in a situation. That's the important thing. And just to round out the last point on other cost factors, you might want to take notes on these. Your interest in finance charges, facility rentals, even supervisory payroll. And here's a big one. The owners include in their overhead their salaries. But in many cases, these salaries are way beyond what actually even the IRS might approve. And they're building in that large factor in their overhead. Now, admittedly, in a perfect world, you want to get paid all that you think you should. But in many cases, if you knew you'd lose the bid or the quote, the pricing, based upon including that, you might be able to afford not to include all that. One other thing is it's inflated to consider. And that is consider replacing a longtime supplier. Now, everybody's gagging on this because the new supplier who may be in town for the first time is hungry. It's replacing him on one deal. But what it is, is it does two things. One is it now makes your supply chain more competitive, wakes up your existing supplier, and your customer becomes the winner. We call that the fear of God, Lonnie. That's a technical term. That's a technical term. Fear of fear God. God. I like that one. I like that one. <laughs> really. Yes. 
Absolutely. But, but you have to do it delicately. It's you have a to way kind of to wake them up. Diplomacy. And I do that every single time. Find a new kid on the block and say, if we can work together, this is yours. Is there a place <laughs> for value engineering in this? There is, you actually. Sometimes the new supplier might actually have a better product, a higher value brand offering, and you can compete with them in different situations than you've been in before. Something to think about. It's a win-win because it wakes up your existing supplier to say, oh, shit, if I did that, would that help us move it further along? Because they didn't get that business that they really were after. And for the new value brand offering, they're now a new partner. Lonnie, I hope you're sitting down. Are you sitting down? I am. All right. So I'm going to give you one that I just can't help because we have a limited time. How about being willing to pay more instead of less as a way of reducing your costs? Absolutely. Can you believe that could happen? Well, I mean- So tell me what you think about that. Just because you're paying more doesn't mean you're making less. Because if you're paying more, what you might be able to do is to sell more. That's all that matters. At the end of the day, if it increases revenue and it drops to the bottom line, what's wrong with that picture? Absolutely nothing. Well, it sounds like something I've had to tell clients and they'll look at me and say, are you nuts when I say that? I say, well, let me talk to your purchasing people. So I go, what's the value of just-in-time reliable vendors? What's the cost of a high return rate? from bad vendors? What's the value of a shorter turnaround time? What's the value of fewer of your customers bitching about your return rates for the product that you provided them or the service by using a better supplier who may charge more? Stan's point is outstanding. We could probably beat this one up for a whole other session, but oftentimes, and this is something to think about business owners, and that is purchasing agents oftentimes get into a groove And that groove is using the same suppliers, same stuff, kind of same shit, different day. It's a killer. So what you've got to do is you've got to have a way to put checks and balances on the purchasing group and make sure that they're constantly finding the right suppliers, constantly keeping your current suppliers on their toes, et cetera. Well, I know when I talk to the purchasing people and they say, my boss will kill me if I suggest we pay more. I already know I got a chance to help the company. That's right. Exactly. I was thinking about, since I threw the curveball about a value engineering, I had a commercial refrigeration manufacturer and they really had these really high quality compressors. And in fact, the owner, he used to brag about quality of our components compared to the competitors, blah, blah, blah. but yet we were losing, really starting to lose money in a big way to competitors in terms of getting orders. And I said, I've talked to some of your customers. I said, I was just doing a little study and asking questions for customer satisfaction. And few could really even comment on the value of the quality of your components compared to other things. They weren't even aware of it, which also spoke, Lonnie, not just to the pricing. Sales team. It spoke to the sales team. Exactly. They weren't educating the clients. That happens more often than not, where basically you've got one part of the business that's thinking this way and the other part of the business that's customer facing is thinking this way and they're not even on the same page. The fact that the sales team not educating the customer about the value that we're providing them is a big deal, especially when it comes down to competitive bidding because oftentimes that's where you lose the customer. 
So are there any other things to consider here? I think we're running out of time is the only other thing I think we got to consider. You want to summarize where we are or where we've been? I'll just throw as a topic point using early payment. We mentioned that. Just consider that as a negotiating tool because cash is king and more cash is an ace when it comes to negotiating prices. For Absolutely. Sure. That's something that old timey 210, 2%, 10 days, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. If you can get them to agree with it, wow. Especially if you're having trouble collecting in basics. So I absolutely put that out there. So just as a summary, we've talked about pricing in depth because that's the key. Even though it sounds like a cost discussion, it's really more of a pricing discussion where costing is an element. The other thing is the errors and the fallacies that owners or people who work for the owners use in computing their overhead rate. That's a big one. I'm telling you, there's money in them, their hills. I hope you are listening and take a time to sit down with your financial people and reconsider your overhead rate, especially as it relates to pricing. Break even point. We've talked about that in previous discussions. I'm not going to beat you to death, but if you're not familiar with that and how you compute it, Google it and you'll be an expert. And I promise you that will also yield big dividends. Again, this is almost a marketing thing as much as a selling thing getting better pricing from your vendors and how you can do it or being willing to pay more and getting more value for it and why paying more can reduce your cost in effect because paying more and having a more reliable vendor could actually enable you to lower your inventory levels, which is a cash flow thing, big item, and how paying early as a negotiating tool can be important. So Lonnie, why don't you say goodbye? Well, once again, we want to thank our listeners for spending time with us. And we hope we've once again given you some things to think about that you hadn't thought about before. And please don't hesitate to send us your questions. Even request an invitation to be a guest at one of our virtual roundtables. Now, come take a test drive. See where it can take you and your business. In fact, we'll actually allow you three visits as our guest so you can be confident that it's a mutual fit. And we can promise you'll feel like one of the families sooner than you might expect. We'd appreciate any and all feedback, good or bad. Just send it along via info at sbvirtualroundtables.com. And we promise to be responsive. See you next time. You've been listening to the Small Business Wake-Up Call, the podcast providing eye-opening insights and perhaps a caffeine high to better run your business. Delivered in Stan Simpkins and Lonnie Shambi's own unique style. Head on over to svvirtualroundtables.com where you can connect with Lonnie and Stan, subscribe to the show, find more resources, and check out their monthly 90-minute virtual roundtables. Thanks for listening to the Small Business Wake-Up Call. 